This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. As we await the return of MPs to Westminster next week, in this week's episode we look across the Atlantic and I've recorded a chat with David Charter, the Times' new US editor who's only been in Washington for two weeks and has already covered massive stories including not one but two huge court cases involving former aides to Donald Trump breaking on the same day. Before we come to that, a reminder that you can come and see the Red Box podcast being recorded live. We're going to be in Liverpool on September the 23rd and in Birmingham on October the 1st. For tickets to those events, go to mytimesplus.co.uk and it's open to all time subscribers. Then, if that's not enough, we're at the Cheltenham Literary Festival, which is sponsored by The Times and The Sunday Times. We're recording a live podcast on October the 11th and then I'm doing a show called This Is Not Normal on October the 13th. Just go to cheltenhamfestivals.com for all the details. Right, back to this week's episode. So David Charter arrives in Washington having previously spent seven years as the Times Berlin correspondent. Before that he had six years in Brussels where he wrote a book which essentially predicted that Britain would end up leaving the EU and I talked to him about that. He previously spent five years working in the lobby for the Times covering Westminster politics. So we'll be interested to see how that compares to life in Washington. During our chat, we discuss his first visit to the White House, the difficulties of making contacts in an administration where people often suddenly and quite dramatically leave their jobs and the prospect of Donald Trump seeking re-election next time round. But I began by asking him how a Times foreign correspondent goes about wiping his mind of all of that knowledge of German politics and trying to get his head around the crazy world that is Washington today. That is a good question because I was Berlin correspondent up until about two weeks before I became the US editor. There was no let-up in the, in the pace of news in Germany because Angela Merkel has been pretty much in crisis ever since she um, just about won the election last September. And it was, it was quite a tough call to how to divide my time between braining up on a bit of uh, Washington and books like... Fire and Fury that maybe a lot of readers have read as well have been part of my bread and butter as well as obviously just talking to my colleagues who are already there in in uh, America and, and reading this their their work 
in the times and and more more than that you can't really do and it may sound a bit cliche having now arrived in washington there was not a great deal i could do to prepare for the tsunami of news that hit me as soon as i arrived <laughs> in this town and so it's probably worth explaining that you you've been there now for a couple of weeks but you've basically barely worked out you know how to turn the lights on and suddenly you've got not one but two uh, sort of big court cases engulfing Donald Trump uh, at, literally on the same day. That's right. One of them I could prepare for because we knew that Paul Manafort was on trial. We'd covered it uh, a bit in the Times and there was certainly a lot of uh, reading to background reading to do from the American press. So that I could prepare for, and I was busily wondering what impacts the result of that trial would have on the presidency, and I was preparing a background articles, only to find that just moments before the conclusion of that trial, the president's personal lawyer suddenly popped up in court in New York unexpectedly and gave a, an admission that brought the, the house down, really, that President Trump had directed him, in his, in his words, to pay hush money to these two women. And all of a sudden, all my careful preparation and background reading on Paul Manafort had gone out of the window, even though he was convicted, <laughs> and it came up. It, it was literally within moments. It was literally five or ten minutes later. Uh, it, it, the Manafort thing paled suddenly into insignificance compared to the prospect of the personal lawyer who's been at Trump's side for over a decade signing a deal to spill the beans on goodness knows what and all of a sudden you know that was the the big story of the day and that it was last Tuesday as it happens a day that will live long in the memory um, possibly a week or more you know given this presidency <laughs> uh, I had to rewrite the story which was became the splash of the, the paper pretty quickly I had to rewrite it three times during the evening for different editions of the paper and an inside piece. I had the help of my colleague, Bo Deng, who's uh, the, the other journalist in the Washington office, of course. We had to just keep topping it up as the revelations kept coming and the reaction kept coming. It, I mean, it's what, it's what you're in journalism for, really, for the, for the big stories, and it was, it was great fun. And presumably that's something you've got to get more used to, not just the, the, the sort of the size of the news explosions, but with the time difference, obviously having been in Brussels and Berlin, the time difference doesn't play a massive part in your day, but part of the problem is with covering America is it's only just as America's sort of really getting going things but you know press conferences and court cases breaking in the afternoon that's just as the point that the back in london the times is is sort of going to press so that's a sort of yeah. a whole new challenge for you to get used to yeah you're absolutely right and it's it's probably a question that somebody uh, only somebody who's been an editor would really even think to ask probably because i was in the office between nine and nine thirty in in germany it was quite relaxed a cup of coffee read through the papers take an hour or so to digest the news and think about three or four stories that i could offer for the day here, I've been leaving the house between 7 and 7.30 in the morning, so I can get at the desk before 8 if possible, because that's already 1 o'clock in, in the UK It's uh, the, with the five-hour time difference. They've already had morning conference in London. We do a, a list in the evening, quite late in the evening, so not only do I get to the office around 8, I in the evening, about 10 o'clock our time, we'll spend up to an hour maybe looking around the next day's American newspapers are beginning to say on their apps 
what other stories may have broken after the newspaper in Britain has gone to bed. And quite frankly, all the online people have probably gone to bed as well. It's after three in the morning back in the UK. So we do a we do a list of three or four things that might be running the next day so that when we come in the office around one o'clock UK, time and pick up we've got a we've got a reasonable idea what might be running although clearly stuff breaks during the night and the office because they've had their morning conference already the ideas have come up in that conference to guide our day so it's and then it's a it's quite a busy run you know through to our lunchtime to, to get stuff ready for the first edition of the paper Let's sort of start trying to sort of pick through a bit what's in your massive intray of stuff to get your head around. You mentioned about how how the Paul Manafort case, who, like you said, was Donald Trump's former campaign manager. That was the case that you could prepare for because we knew it was happening, although it was it didn't actually relate to anything to do with the campaign. He, you know, he was found guilty of uh, financial crime, but it, was, it all predated his time of work for Trump. Then along comes the Michael Cohen case, which you didn't know about, but far more directly involves Trump because to do with the spending and the paying off of two women who Trump had an affair with. You said that it paled in, into insignificant. How, how explosive actually do you think the Michael Cohen case is? Is it something that was, you know, that was the big story last week and then something else is going to come along? Or do you, is its impact going to be felt for longer than that? The impact is twofold because there's the uh, personal impact on Donald Trump's state of mind, his feeling security and paranoia in his, in his own office, because this was a very close aide, whereas Manafort wasn't particularly close. He was more of a Republican operative who had offered to help. And that that bleeds into the next main point, which is that Cohen, by the nature of his job and his closeness, has um, untold access and perhaps documentary evidence, which we know was a lot of which was seized in a raid on his office and his on his home back in April, which I just think is just vastly more potentially explosive than what we think we know Man- Manafort um, got to know during his what ten weeks in charge of the campaign. And it, it's worth I think sort of slightly pointing out is that because these things move so quickly and it seems like we've known about Stormy Daniels for a decade or more, you know, because stuff stuff happened so fast. I mean, it's worth pointing out that at the heart of this story is an admission that the now president of the United States had an affair with two women who were then paid off because it basically paid off to try and keep them quiet during the campaign so it didn't come out then. But the, the actual impact of the fact of him cheating on his wife doesn't, doesn't seem to have resonated as much. Is that, or at least on this side of uh, the Atlantic, is that the, the case there? It's, it's, it's about the payoff and following the money and breaking the law rather than the sort of the moral impact, if you like, of him cheating on his wife? I, I would agree with that. I think the general sleaze case, if you if you like, of, of cheating on his wife, it's not playing so hard and it seemed to have been forgiven or maybe better worded, overlooked by his supporters uh, for, for a long time. And, and we knew that already. And what's new in the last few weeks is, is, is the lengths that... Uh, the Trump people and possibly the Trump himself went to uh, to cover it up because they couldn't win the election just with their base, the, the true supporters who didn't, who were prepared to overlook the affairs, but they did need the votes of swing voters and perhaps more moderate people, and also the evangelical Christian vote. And the, the you know a lot of a lot of Americans do have fir- very firm Christian beliefs. And all these people needed to be won over to, to make sure he, he beat Hillary Clinton. So there was a, 
there was a there was a need to keep sleaze and inverted quiet because there's so much news things that things that are already emerged are already out seem to almost be forgotten or sidelined and unless they are pertinent to the running story of the day and i should i should say matt then the thing that a journalist is supposed to do really when they arrive in a new country, as in my case, is to try and make some contacts, you know, to try and meet some people. And this is, this is, this is proving a little more difficult in the case of uh, Washington at the moment because of the, the way our day runs, trying to get a lunch with someone, which is the preferred method of establishing relationships, I believe, in Westminster. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite problematic. You can't, you can't book a lunch with any certainty that by the time it comes round, you won't be swamped uh, in another inappropriate Washington analogy <laughs> with, uh, with the latest revelations. You try and sort out something to do in the afternoon after your six or seven hours of trying to make sense of the of the of the day's news it's very exciting to even for a journalist you know who's been around for a while and and i've i've done as you say uh, seven years in berlin and six years in brussels and five years in london and in in the lobby in westminster before that but it's still it's still a thrill to go through the security gates of the white house go through the press room into the little labyrinths of offices at at the back where the the president's trusted uh, press team work and say hi, introduce yourself, and then try and get to know a few people. It's it, it, because it's all so cramped and confined back there. You you literally, when you get up, you go up a floor to meet people on the upper level, and you're literally you can see one of the doors to the Oval Office, you know, through wow. down a corridor. But it's 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 just there, you know. It's 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 right by the seat of power. It's an exciting job. It's uh, I, I may I may have emphasized the the long hours and, and the low pay <laughs> did i mention that uh, but uh, but uh, but it's a fact it is a very exciting place to be talking about building contacts and that sort of thing to what extent do you think like the normal way of doing political journalism I mean, like you said you're in the lobby in westminster for five years is you get to know people and build up sources and contacts and that sort of thing when you've got a president who is constantly churning stuff out on twitter and no amount of contacts if you like ever seem to know his mind right. in the way that he does. Does that completely sort of change the way of doing the job, do you think? I can speak with more certainty about the situation in Berlin. It's always more difficult as an outsider from a foreign news organisation trying to build contacts yeah. uh, with politicians whose time is limited and who are most keen to speak directly to their voters, you know, their constituents. And so you're you you always some way down on the list as a person to spend time with or you know to share share top top secrets and exclusives with unfortunately but uh, you know gradually you find those people you know, it happened in berlin you gradually find those mps or those advisors with a special interest in brexit or in, in just british relations or whatever else you're interested in and and you and you and you gradually find these people my predecessor uh, reese blakely um I know, and, and my colleague, Bohr, have found that they have also, over time, cultivated people. But they, in this White House, they, the, the turnover rate is pretty high. <laughs> and uh, they, 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 you know, one day they're having coffee with someone who they think is going to be a solid contact and help them on deadline with uh, that key piece of information. And the next day, the email's ba- bouncing back because they've, they've packed up their cardboard box. You know? So it's, <laughs> it, it, 
it's a, a continual a continual mission really to get to know who's who's who and see if they'll speak to you and, and hopefully keep their then keep their job. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. As you you mentioned the B word, you you brought up Brexit. But we should probably we should probably mention that when uh, while you were in Brussels, you wrote a book called Au Revoir Europe, which essentially this is back in 2011, 2012, where you, you essentially predicted that Britain would end up leaving the EU. I'm, I, did you put any money on that at the time? <laughs> Do you know what I I wrote the book because I thought there was a strong possibility that Britain would vote to leave in a referendum because all the signs. To me, as a, as a Brussels journalist, all the signs pointed to you know our disengagement, the very low level of understanding of, of Brussels that we all now are so familiar with. I did not put any money on it, however, because I still thought that somehow the political establishment would be able to win a re- Personally, I thought that the, the, the British establishment would somehow be able to win a referendum. For the purposes of the book, um, I went through how the referendum is, is lost because there was so much evidence for it. But I, I think what I'm trying to say is that deep down, I, I never really quite believed that Britain would leave the, the, the EU, that there, a way would be found to stay in. And I don't know, maybe that way might still be found. I, you're, the, you're the expert now. <laughs> and pass the baton over. But um, it's true that in the book, I, it was a book about what happens if Britain leaves the, the EU. You, because I did think there was a very strong chance of it, having having seen at first hand not only the British gate engagement that I talked about, but also you know the way Brussels works. It's it's a bit dysfunctional. It's it, the British point of view wasn't getting across as much as it or as it used to. We were we were very very much at one point removed, and the, and actually the conceit of the book was even if we stayed, we'd be kind of be kind of leaving sort of in a in a. In, in an engagement sense, if you like, we've always been a bit at arm's length anyway, you know, with the rebate and opt outs and various things. So the conceit of the book was, you know, whatever happens in the referendum, we're kind of, we're kind of, we're kind of taking leave of the main project. We never joined the euro, we never will. And what I saw in Brussels was a, an EU that was more determined than ever to come together around the euro. 
you know, to save the euro and to and to come to, and to stick to the euro was so important to them. At the time I was there, it was all the Greek crisis that I just thought we're never going to be part of this. We're never going to be part of the inner core of, of Europe. I doubt we we ever will be until it until you know the euro blows apart and they probably have to start again. But that's another story. And so, having having been in Berlin, where the sort of the the political establishment view is that the Brexit probably not the best idea, you've arrived in in Washington where. I, th- I think the the view of the sort of the Trump administration is that Britain is in a good place, and this was a good idea to get out of out of the European bloc. Is that is that your sense? That's the that's the administration line. Obviously, it's Trump's own personal feeling. You know, he's, he's the great disruptor. He's the one who 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 likes to you know, throw his throw his weight around and and has this America First policy, which he he saw he saw reflected in Brexit. It was it was like a Britain First um, movement uh, as far as Trump saw it. The only feeling I get in, uh, from the sort of rest of the Washington establishment, you like, is it's sort of it's a little bit similar to the to the German establishment, there's a kind of resignation about it, if you like. It's uh, not a lot of the traditional, if you like, Washington establishment wanted to see it. There have always been some Republican voices like Newt Gingrich, who, who did think it was a good idea to leave. Uh, and, in, and in fact, at one point, even offered Britain a place in the, in the NAFTA, in the North American Free Trade Agreement. But uh, but I think I think the consensus uh, view, as it was in, in Europe, would it would be better if Britain stayed. Looking at it through American glasses, but I also think that there's a there's a, there's a very strong feeling now in the White House. People like Bolton, you know, have uh, seemed pretty favourable to Brexit, and think that um, Britain it will create deeper relationships with with Britain. And what about the that that cursed phrase, the special relationship? We've spoken on the podcast before right. to Christopher May, who said it used to drive Americans mad because. It was a sort of a British obsession. Is that a, yeah. is that a thing? I mean, the, the, Donald Trump's relationship with Theresa May seems to have gone. You know, they've had a they've had a fifty year marriage in the space of sort of eighteen months. Uh, you know, from, right. from hand holding to falling out and then tweeting, and you know, it seemed a bit better when he came to the UK. It, when you when you sit down with someone from the, the sort of Trump administration, the man from the Times of London, do, you know, is the yeah. sense they like the Brits and Theresa May? When I've had my one sit down so far in two weeks uh, in, in the job. The feeling I get, you know, watching the scene is that there, there are a series of special relationships uh, for the Americans. I mean, periodically, not personally between Trump and Trudeau, but uh, clearly the, the, the Americans regard Canada as, as a very special relationship for obvious reasons. Trump actually has a bit of a fixation with Emmanuel Macron in France, yeah. he's going to go again to Paris to, to watch the hundredth um, uh, anniversary commemorations of the end of the First World War, I should say. And there's there's this kind of fascination there, I think, with Macron and France going on. And then there's this weird relationship between America and Germany right now, just because of the the strange relationship that Trump has with Merkel. Uh, strange and strained, I should say. But, uh, <laughs> I would say, yeah, it's a it's a special relationship. I, I, I don't see it. I don't I don't see the special relationship. And just just because I don't want to detain you for hours, but the uh, I feel like there's a whole load of stuff that I should sort of ask you about. So let's try and run through it in, in sort of. Oh, go on. Yeah. So let's. Um, North, where are we on North Korea? There was a whole. You know, that was that was the big thing for about five minutes. Uh, North Korea, the relationship between. Trump and Kim Jong-un, where's that on the current sort of top 10 of, of things dominating Washington? 
Oh, it's in the top ten because uh, Trump made such a big effort. But he 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 has now realised what people have been saying for a few weeks, if not months, which is that Kim is not really showing real signs of denuclearizing and you better start to backpedal a bit because you're going to look foolish if you if you you know if, if you put too much store on on a, on a successful outcome so yeah. it, it it really is in the, in the top 10 of issues it is talked about a lot because it's such a fascinating development however it's not working out as donald trump had hoped at the moment um and what about russia vladimir putin was coming to the white house he wasn't coming to the white house as Trump is very keen to stress, the Paul Manafort case, nothing to do with the Russian collusion. Is that Where's Russia currently in the, in the grand scheme of things? This is a huge issue, mainly on the other side of the aisle, because of Trump's seeming in- inability to accept or admit that Russian interference in the election is a thing, when it is so clearly, I think, been shown that the there was a lot of interference or attempted interference in the election. It's a really big, perplexing issue that is hanging over the Trump presidency. And it's now become the whole Russia inquiry led by Robert Mueller has become a sort of strange sort of um, get out of jail card for Trump, who's basically saying no one's ever found any Russian collusion by me or my campaign. Uh, There's no collusion. It's a rigged witch hunt. And this is now his mantra. Um, whatever else is discovered, there was no collusion with Russia. So what are they going on about? It's 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 just the card he always plays in response to almost anything else that's thrown at him. So it's become it's become a strange a strange player in in in, in the ongoing drama of this whole of the whole thing. Is the fact that the, that he hasn't been tied to it um, is something that he he now comes back to as a you know, as a, as a plus point. And just, just given your, 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 your title is uh, US editor and not sort of Trump correspondent, what, what, else do you yeah. hope, what else do you hope to do? It's obviously such a vast country and there is more to America than Trump. And, you know, presumably the closer we get to not just uh, elections this autumn, but, you know, the, the, his re-election campaign, you want to get out and about and, and try to get a handle on his support and where it's coming from and is it still there and that sort of stuff. What... what what are you looking forward to about being in America, apart from endlessly, apart from just monitoring Donald Trump's Twitter account? I'm absolutely desperate to already to get out of Washington and go and uh, you know sample the rest the rest of the country and what people are doing and thinking uh, around the country. I mean, it's such a a vast and and amazing country that uh, it would be crazy just to just to just to stay in Washington and get sucked into this this psycho drama that everyone's obsessed with here it would be it would be crazy i mean i obviously i've got to keep an eye on on the democrats and who's trying to show themselves so i'm sure that will very quickly bring me to these states like iowa and new hampshire which are so important in the first the first showings of who wants to come forward for the democrats to to face trump um so those 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 sort of things but really I'd love to get off, just park the political agenda if it will if it will let me for a few days and go and just do some of the other the, the stories. Uh, there's the whole race issue, which is uh, an, an undercurrent that is everywhere in the in the media and, and society in America, and um, it will be fascinating to look into that and not just 
with the start of the football season and whether these footballers are going to kneel down during the national anthem in, in protest at black rights. But just across the piece, there are there are still these crazy, crazy uh, sight of people being shot or arrested. I mean, you're, you're talking there about shootings. I think one of the things which Brits constantly find baffling about America, we think we're alike in lots of ways, and yet the... the just gun crime, the mass shootings, which seem to be sort of constant. I imagine will you know cross your desk endlessly in the in the new job. But that it's one of those parts of American culture which Brits just find just completely baffling. Yes, that's right. I mean, as you know, our talk right now was um, delayed because there was another mass shooting in Florida that we had to report on, and it's true that. The guns and the Second Amendment uh, are really part of the national conversation uh, uh, still, but that, that doesn't. Amazingly, there's there's no real political imperative uh, for action at all at the moment to to make the country a bit safer on on guns. It seems, and you know that's something that fascinates me, and I want to. I would, I would love to go out and, and meet the communities, the, the schools, for example, which are arming themselves. Um, the, the, the education secretary only the other day has, has said she wants to earmark a particular federal budget for schools that, to buy more guns wow. uh, for teachers. It's just uh, an, an, a fascinating story that yeah. we can, all, we, all we can hope to do is just explain it to readers try and un- understand the way that they uh, americans think about it because it, it's it it just underlines that this is a foreign country i think i think reese uh, my predecessor said in 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 his farewell piece if they spoke german or another language here it would it would we would definitely re- regard them as a very foreign people but because they speak english that that gets a bit lost sometimes, and that's why we get uh, often a bit bemused and confused about the way things are in this country, which that's that's my job, is to try and understand and explain. Well, just before I let you go, I'm just going to ask you a completely unfair and cruel question. Uh, after two weeks of having been there and trying to get your head around it all, how do you, how do you think it all pans out with Trump? Does he, does he survive? Does he, does he fight the next election? I'm bringing this European sensibility to... An, an, a very alien situation, I think. I mean, I, my European sensibility, having worked in London, in Westminster, and Brussels, and Berlin, is that this guy's days are really numbered, and the, the walls seem to be closing in, revelation by revelation. It did seem a particularly damaging week for him last week. However, this country plays by its own rules, and the only way that he can be force from office it seems to me is uh, impeachment and that's regarded as a as a, a criminal matter but it's actually 100% political and of course then that that depends on the control which party has the has the control of the of the of congress and even if the house of representatives votes for impeachment the senate would have to pass it by a two-thirds majority and I believe I'm right that Nixon only resigned because he he thought that he was he was not he was going to lose on the two thirds majority. Uh, so bad had things become after Watergate, but it just doesn't seem to me that there's any prospect, uh, given the very divisive and and partisan nature of politics that I found here, there's, that there's any prospect at all of the Senate voting by two thirds to get rid of Donald Trump. Whilst 
one part of me thinks, wow, um, it really does seem bad for him. Another part of me thinks he, he'll go on as long as he wants to go on. And then that, that's a good thing in a way because it will, it will leave it up to voters. It won't, it won't be down to Washington politics. It'll be up to voters in, in the next uh, general election if, in, if, he, if Trump keeps to his word and, and uh, if we're to take him at his word that he'll stand again. Let me just put a, a quick marker down that uh, I'm not at all sure we can, you can really rely on Donald Trump uh, to, you know, to keep to that word, to keep to that promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, I'm glad you, you've, you've only been there two weeks. You've already worked out that sometimes Donald Trump might say something and not necessarily mean it. Um, <laughs> David, let's, hope, let's hope for me, yeah. Uh, David, it's absolutely fascinating to speak to you, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again over the coming months and, and years. David Charter, thank you very much. And that's all we've got time for on this week's Red Box podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your Android device and sign up to the Red Box morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox, ready for when it returns in September. And for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.